Agents Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Chime. Chime offers an award-winning sales acceleration platform built for the real estate industry. Powered by artificial intelligence, Chime delivers the data insights agents and teams need to make the most out of the leads they already have and to get to a close faster. Through an expanding partner network, Chime's easy-to-use conversion platform also delivers quality sales-ready leads from the get-go. It eliminates time-consuming manual tasks and helps agents focus on what matters most, building their network, servicing clients, and growing the bottom line. To learn more about how Chime can help you, visit www.chime.me or call 833-682-4463. You know, I think that most real estate professionals, real estate agents, do not take advantage of the competitive advantage that they have with their license, with the data that they have access to in investing in real estate. And those that do, well, we applaud you. But the majority of you that don't, this podcast is for you. So when this, this guest was brought to me, uh, I was very interested, as I, I mentioned all the time on this podcast, selfishly as, as the host, I love it because I get to ask all the questions because I get to learn for myself. So if nobody pays any attention, frankly, I, at least one did. I can tell you that. And that's what caught my eye about this, uh, this guest today. His name is Jake Harris. He's the author of a book called Catching Knives, A Guide to Investing in Distressed Commercial Real Estate. I'm going to stress that, commercial real estate. And I was telling Jake before we started that if I knew what I knew, what I know now, back when I started investing in real estate, I would have just foregone all residential real estate and gone straight to commercial because me personally had a miserable time. It created way more headaches and commercial has been a hell of a lot more profitable and easier to manage. And we're going to talk about that today. So I'm looking forward to meeting and getting to know Jake. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. And uh, like you said, I, I had to learn those lessons the hard way too, through trial and error, or just, uh, you know, being, you know, too dumb to, to figure out what other people had uh, already experienced. And I was like, no, no, I'm so smart. I have to go make these mistakes one after another. So uh, happy to, to, to jump into that and share some of my uh, trials and errors. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's, let's get started with you just kind of telling our audience a little bit about yourself. So, you know, where, where did you start in business? What led you to where you are today? Tell us your story. So I, I've you know been a professional investor for the last twenty years, but really it was interesting. I was uh, at my mom's house recently, and I was looking, and on the fridge is a picture of me and my little brother when we were kids, and we were carrying a sheet of plywood. And I don't know, we're probably six and eight, um, and it took me back to a moment was. We had bought this old farmhouse, old meaning that it was built in 1888. Didn't even have a foundation. It just sat on rocks. It was this old orchard in, in Northern California that you know was a previously a thousand acre orchard. And we bought this. We lived in a 16 foot camp trailer, a family of five. Also, now I you know scaled out 16 feet. Now I'm like, I have three kids, and I was like wait a minute, this is really small. What the heck? So although I have been a professional investor for the last 20 years, I can actually see back to where my early origins, I kind of grew up on a construction site. I grew up 
doing that, fixing up a, a house. And that was kind of all I really knew. I got into the army. Uh, as I was getting out of the army, somebody gave me the rich dad, poor dad book. It was kind of that light bulb moment, like, oh, wow, this is exactly what I want to do. After and subsequently, I bartended at a country club because I didn't know very many rich people. I, and again, I was just getting out of the army. And so I was like, oh, that's where rich people hang out. And so I bartended there and I asked their advice. And I said, I'm 23. I'm ready to grab the tiger by its tail. I want to build skyscrapers. What should I do? And they said, work for a contractor. And, uh, and I was like, that's not what I wanted to hear. Uh, so I said, why? And so it was everything involved in real estate has a contractor. I don't care if you're remodeling your kitchen, you're building a skyscraper, you're moving dirt out in a subdivision, a contractor's involved. And what happens is you're kind of in a partnership dance or, you know, relationship competing for the same dollars. So what is left over after it's been bought, after it's been fixed up and the profits are this and the contractor wants to make as much as as possible and the sponsor owner wants to make as much as as possible and so then you have this delicate dance and so sometimes contractors will make more money or make profits and the owner loses money so it was like man the earlier you can figure out those things the people that come from the trades have a leg up they know how long something should take. They know what inherently, you know, what the cost of that is. Uh, and so when the contractors, you know, pull in your leg, you can say, Hey, no, this is not the way. So I worked in commercial construction, uh, as an estimator, a superintendent, a project manager, did a lot of, uh, projects then started flipping houses in the early two thousands down in Phoenix. I met Robert Kiyosaki. I hung out with him at his studio. He was like, Hey, young man, be cautious sometimes because of all of this, the greed. And I was like, you just don't understand how smart I am. The market would have to go down more than 30% for me to ever get touched. Then I became this millionaire before 30. And then sitting on a street corner down the street from uh, of U of A in, in Tucson crying, dear Lord, can I be worth no money? Zero dollars. Actually, because I have a negative net worth my portfolio that I had and the real estate market and the subprime collapse, they went down 70%. And so Robert Kiyosaki was right. I was wrong. I thought, you know, I'm just buying these things at a discount. Uh, it'll always work out. Having negative cash flow or, you know, rentals that we're not renting out or being too slow as far as putting together the systems. And so that ultimately led into putting together an opportunistic distress fund later and going back to school and now doing 1200 flips in 23 States. And then the last seven years has been almost all exclusively commercial real estate. Wow. So first of all, the, does Kiyosaki actually live in Arizona? So he's from Hawaii because I've read the books and you know, of course it's had an impact on a lot of our lives. Uh, why would you move? I mean, that's just, I'm asking a rhetorical, just a, general question, but why would you move from Hawaii to Arizona? Maybe because to be closer to your investments, I assume. I feel like he, you know, so he met his wife, his wife's from Phoenix. Ah, okay. And so they owned their first property was like a town home or, you know, or duplex type of thing in Arizona that his wife's, you know, is from there, which is interesting is 
I met his mother-in-law. We're at a dinner and his mother-in-law and he wrote, you know, this book. And she's like, I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever read. She's like, honestly, like a good old mother-in-law was. And she's like, but he had nothing else going on. Robert Kiyosaki had nothing else going on. And he was like, I'm going to write a book and to sell some, you know, board games. And she was just like, I encouraged it because he had nothing else going on. I was just like, and then she, the concept of it. And she's like, I just thought it was terrible. (laughs) And then it became this international, you know, gazillions of copies sold and then built out a very robust business model um, just off of that, you know, rich dad, poor dad platform. That's interesting. And I don't mean to go down this path because that's not what this is about. But now that you mentioned it, wasn't he already a millionaire from his investments in Hawaii? Not really. So a little bit, not, not really. It was really the book's momentum that then created the, the, the real revenue that allowed him to start investing. And then as a millionaire, he was able to continue to uh, assemble good teams around him and continue to double and triple and quadruple down on real estate. At least, you know, that was my understanding. I don't believe that he was a, a millionaire before that book, or maybe if he was, you know, his, his, his main pitch was he wouldn't sell board games. Really? He was going to sell that cash flow board game. And that's the whole reason he wrote Kid, or Rich Dad, Poor Dad was to sell the board games. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Huh. Interesting. And I own all of the above the books. I own, I own the kids board game, but uh, it's interesting. Well, what? good stuff. So, so, okay. So that's a, that's a fascinating story. And now fast forward to where you are today. Now, I assume you're still doing residential as well, or have you just completely halted that and you're just managing the portfolio that you built? Yeah, I, I don't do very much in the residential space uh, because as you, you, you know, highlighted in the beginning of it, it is the same exact amount of work is to do a $250,000 house as it is to do a $10 million commercial deal. Yeah. You make 10% profit on a $250,000 house, you make 25 grand, you make 10% on a $10 million deal, you make a million dollars. So time is by far and away the most precious commodity that we all possess. We can make more money. We can't make more time. And so when that was, is as I was looking and now as a, uh, as a husband and a father of three, like I, I now, you know, really very uh, acutely aware of how precious time is. And so it's like, I am just going to be focusing on those things that, that allow, you know, more time freedom and financial wherewithal to flip uh, houses or build them or do whatever, it takes a lot to make a million dollars. So I got to go to 50 houses or I do one deal. And that's of those. And so that's where I've focused a lot more in the commercial space, building a hotel on the Riverwalk in San Antonio, converting an office building to apartments, doing new ground up construction on, on apartments in East Austin and other markets. And really, so it it is just kind of all been exclusively focused to commercial the, uh, what you, you hit, you hit the nail on the head as far as real estate agents or people that have, you know, the understanding and see the, the pulse of the market. There's so many, I wish I would have kept like so many of those houses I flipped. I wish I would have kept just for cash flow. Like I look back at that and every time I want to like, you know, be a, a masochist and you'd be like, think about all those 1200 houses I flipped. I'd only kept a hundred of those. 
Right. You know, that only kept, you know, and then, then the values have gone up and it was like, wow, I could have done that very easily, you know, being the fact that I was in the market. And so part of writing the book was to, to showcase, to show people like you can do this. Like it is not that much more complex or more difficult to do a commercial deal as it is to do residential. So I want to, I want to get back to that, but at first I want to ask you, so you went through the crash and you crashed. Um, I, I could, I experienced it. I know exactly what you're talking about. It drove me to have to file a bankruptcy just to protect myself, you know, and it was, it was very strategic and, and it I worked out really well for me, relatively speaking, of course, but you went through this crash. You failed miserably like we all did and you came out of it and then went and bought a crap ton more and real residential real estate properties, which I did not do. I just said, listen, I'm going to focus on my core business. And then I started you know, dripping in later, but why did you go back to that pain? Was it because you felt like now you've learned, uh, even though you were good at it and it was the market that dictated what happened, weren't you even remotely afraid of that the market could crash again, something completely out of your control? A little bit. Um, so yeah, it was a an introspective era. There was another book that I read at that time. So Rich Dad, Poor Dad started me out. And then really what it was is uh, I read Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Workweek. It came out and actually I was right in the middle of like losing everything. And so like, I didn't even have the money to go buy the book. I'd walk to the bookstore back when there was bookstores <laughs> and I would go there and it was this new best release, you know, book. And I would read Tim Ferriss's four hour work week in the lobby with a coffee shop area a little bit each day. And then I would put it back on the shelf and then walk back to, to, you know, my house. And then I came and did that. And so, you know, for those that have not read it, it is not about working four hours in, in a week. It's about how you 10 X your, you know, using systems and putting other things. And that was one of the big mistakes that I kind of put together. I had a goal of becoming a millionaire before 30. I achieved that, but um, goals are great for those that want one-time success. Systems are great for those that want repeatable and predictable success. And so what happens is you default to the level of your systems. Willpower and just gritting it out. And that goal helps establish kind of that direction. And like in my situation, becoming a millionaire, but then it was like, that's a new skill set. is how do you maintain this? How do you continue to evolve? And beyond that is I had no systems. And so it was like putting those in and that's where Tim Ferriss. And so it was like, I absolutely love what I do as far as creatively thinking, creating value, buying assets, using data. You know, I would spend hours and hours in MLS and, you know, demographic reports. And it was like, I am meant to do real estate. And so even though I had just been absolutely kicked in the teeth, lost everything, the relationship I was in failed. My brothers, you know, said, Hey, Jake, you're a, you're a, you're an asshole. You know, you're so fo focused on being a millionaire. You're myopically focused. So it was like all of these other areas of my life were bankrupt, but it was like real estate was a thing that I still was meant to do. And now I needed to focus on all of those other aspects as well to become kind of a, a whole life millionaire, better health, better relationship, better giving back, you know, and layering those in. But it was like, no, I am going to do real estate the rest of my life. And so I just said, 
put me back in coach. I went back to school. I went and got a master's degree in international real estate and finance. And I was like, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it even better. Here's things that I did right. Here's the things that I didn't do right. And now how do we double down and triple down on my strengths? And then obviously the like um, Ben Hardy's who, not how was, you know, and there was an evolution and it wasn't like, I didn't know that book existed yet, but it was like a process of now getting back into the game and figuring it out and uh, layering in. There's a guy, we call it family office now, but, you know, used to be just a rich guy, a rich guy was like, hey, there's blood in the streets. It's a good time to be buying. And so I even put that quote on the back of my book. The best time it was from Baron uh, Rothschild said the best time to be buying real estate is when there's blood in the streets, even if it's your own blood. Hmm. So I was like, yeah, very much my own blood. It was the right time to be buying real estate. I could be scared. But the reality is, is we got to get back in the game and pick yourself up and let's go put our big boy pants, you know, on big girl pants and uh, go do it. So, uh, and then I want to, I want to at some point shift to the, to the uh, commercial side of things, but since you mentioned the blood in the streets, I want to ask you that because obviously blood in the streets at that time meant that the market had just completely tanked, right? And there's foreclosures and, and everything was bad was happening. What do you call it today? So I wrote. I wrote the book during COVID um, when everything else kind of shut down. I was like, oh, yes, this is the time. This is the skill sets that I am specially skilled, like uh, Liam Neeson. I have a very select sketch yeah. of skills that I mm. can do. That's where I thought this was going to be it. I wrote the book. Hey, I'm very, very good at investing into distressed real estate with you know, this information. And then the real estate market tripled. <laughs> Wait a minute. The government went out and printed $20 trillion and papered over and kicked the can down the road on in many, many aspects. And so I thought there was going to be tons of distress everywhere. It was going to be, we're going to be walking around and be like hotels, retail centers, restaurants, all empty, desolate and buying them for pennies on the dollar. And everybody would be scared but my crystal ball is not very accurate. Um, don't fight the Fed. It went the other way. Is there opportunities? Yes, absolutely. Is there distress in rising markets? Yes, absolutely. And really what it breaks down to, especially in the commercial real estate world, is the, the financials, the putting together these systems. It is not about how good am I, how good's Jeff, how good's Jake. It is about putting together a team. This is a team effort. Even though I've been doing this for 20 years, I hire inspectors. I hire engineers. I hire real estate attorneys to review all of our contracts. I have checklists that I go off of. Just like a pilot has a checklist or a surgeon has a checklist because the downside risk is somebody dies in surgery or you fly a plane in the side of a mountain. I was like, well, my checklist, you're probably not going to die if your commercial deal goes sideways might feel like it, but it's like negatives and like, let's just go down this checklist and, and, you know, see what, you know, we need to put together as a collective team and that, and then the systems is ultimately what became very, very important when I uh, discovered this hindsight. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know where, where the deals are. It seems very 
nebulous right now with the, the current environment. Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to ask you before we end, you know, what you think, where you think the market is going to go and when you think there might be a shift, because I think there, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity. Uh, it's just a matter of when, but let's, let's get, let's, let's get back on track. So that question will be coming. Uh, I want to talk about now. Okay. So you went through this process, you know, and you, you, you bought, you succeeded, uh, the market took a crap, you failed, you went back to buying residential real estate and then, and you grew a massive, you know, a massive portfolio. I think you said 1200 plus, and then you shifted to commercial and, and you've said this multiple times. I said it in the beginning, like commercials easier. Well, it's the same as residential with a better return. However, there's a very important point that I felt was a what was was a struggle or a barrier to entry into commercial, and that is, okay, that makes sense, Jake. Ten million, I make a million to two hundred or two fifty, I make ten, right? Uh, but the barrier to entry to owning that commercial is a lot more difficult because that down payment on the ten million or the million or the whatever is a hell of a lot more than the down payment on a 200. And that's, I think, what stops a lot of people from going there. So what? So talk me through that. Like, how were you able to, did you just establish reserves? Had you just, had you done that? Or, you know, because I think I'd like your take on what you think holds people back from commercial in addition to that and how they can overcome that. So here is the, the, the thing that I say on that. Every limitation is a self-limitation. And so, and, and I'll give you an example of that. So I, you know, I told you after I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I wanted to go build skyscrapers. And so I have not built a skyscraper, even though I have 20 years experience, hundreds of millions of real estate. And so I was like, I'm going to go <clears throat> at some point build a skyscraper. And I was in Miami years ago. I'd finished up, you know, grad school. And I was like, man, it was my experience. Once I'm able to do so many hundreds of millions of dollars, then I can go do a skyscraper, a big deal like that. And I met this kid and I say, kid, 28, 30 year old kind of guy. He had just finished a 50 story condo project in Miami beach. And he made $30 million profit. And I was like, what? How'd you do that? Like, what'd you do? Like, you think he's like two years ago, three years ago, I came to this country. I had no money, no credit, no experience. I think he was from Venezuela. No money, no anything. I literally went and put an offer on a piece of parcel that was on the market, listed on the market. And down the street, there was a sign for a contractor and the architect that were doing this other 50 story building. And I went to them and I said, Hey, I want to do one of those projects over here on this lot. Can you put together plans and tell me what that cost is? And they put together plans and they put together a cost and they put it together. And he just like literally walked around as, Hey, I'm doing this project and found an agent to, to broker it. They were able to get people to buy in and put down deposits on the project and they built it out. And so he didn't do a market study. He didn't do a comp a competitive analysis. He didn't put together funding on it, just put it in contract, 
put it, you know, uh, from the architect, the engineer, put together the plans that people came through. He was then able to convince a few people in Miami that, hey, I'm going to go do this deal and you can make some money and some profits off of it. They sold it out. They built it, you know, they in two years time, built it. He made $30 million, the first real estate project he's ever done in his entire life was the dream project that I was like in 20 years of experience that I could possibly do this thing that had no credit, no experience, hadn't even lived in this country more than three years ago, came out and did that as the very first project. And I was just like, like hit me over the head with a two by four. I was like, how many limiting beliefs have I started to believe about myself that says I can't go do a hundred million dollar development project as the first project I ever do. And so to me, that was like so mind numbingly blew my mind. I was just like, I could, I couldn't like, it, it caused me like, you know, trepidation. Like I just sat there and I was just like, I can't believe this. Like it, it, it rocked me. And so when I say that, and so when you look at it and say, hey, this third, you know, $10 million deal, guess what? There are ways to do $10 million deals with no money. There are ways to do $10 million, $100 million with no money. No. So your goal is finding out the ways to do those deals with no money. Sure. The goal is to find out those things and created, and what's interesting about commercial real estate, and especially real estate as a whole, is you get a free option, a free option. And so, you know, if you, you trade in the stock market, you may know that there's options. You can exercise and put down a price that in the future, if Tesla goes and it's $1,000 a share, I can sell it at the $420, and then I can make the in profit and the difference. And so what's interesting about commercial real estate is you can go and tie a piece of property up in escrow. If you don't like the deal, you can walk away. But while you're in escrow, tied up, controlling it, you have a very intensive time period to try to figure out all the things that could possibly go wrong with this deal to make it not a slam dunk. And so what you could do is you can achieve the grand slam slam dunk deal while you're in escrow. $7 million building, you can go list it and find a tenant that wants it. That tenant will sign a 10-year lease. And then you can have a forward commitment from a private equity group that'll buy it for a six cap, which is $20 million. If you get that tenant, you can do all this stuff while in escrow and eliminate all the risk and the variables in a commercial deal. And then when you go take it to the bank, you go, Hey, look at all the ways that I've eliminated the risk. Will you give me a loan? And they'll give you a hundred percent of the financing plus the fix up cost because they think it's a great deal. And it's based on the credit worthiness of the tenant it has nothing to do with you. Yeah. That's insane. Um, and I feel like that's really fast forwarding because I had some questions about the, 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 the first guy, the Venezuelan, but you know, obviously you kind of just answered them to an extent because I was going to say when just to get a deal in escrow, a lot of times they want to, they're, they're going to require a proof of funds or something like that. Right. But you're I telling have, me not necessarily. Yeah, and I want to say I, I've yet to see in the commercial deal, anybody ask for a proof of funds when I've put a commercial deal in escrow. So it's, 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 it's not as common because in, in, in residential, it's very common. Sure. Interesting. Interesting. Well, what if you're raising the funds or later? Like I'm going to go raise the funds from investors after I've put it. And, and you know, you can tie up land, uh, land or commercial deal for a year. Yeah. You can say, I'm going to rezone your land. 
I'm going to put an option and I'm going to assemble 10 acres around you and I'm going to rezone it to a uh, hundred units an acre. And I'm going to pitch that and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do due diligence and I'm going to take the entitlement or I'm going to take it to the city planning and the commission and everybody else. And then when I do that, it's going to be worth more money. Yeah. You can do that and put it in escrow. Like, so they just, and, and that's where like uh, commercial real estate is kind of buyer beware. There are not a bunch of disclosures. It is who is the bigger sucker. And so when you're like in knowledge is a very important thing to have in the space. And, uh, you know, so you go in and say, Hey, I'm going to buy this $10 million building. And I've tied up stuff for $10 million that I put 20 grand down and put it in escrow and took a year to close on it. I went and raised the money afterwards. I went and raised it from investors. I didn't have the investors yet, but I had the 20 grand to tie up a $10 million building. Interesting. So Let's go down that path then, because I think that's going to pique a lot of interest. I think a lot of people are going to hear this story and think, eh, sounds hokey, right? Sounds like a fluke. But clearly, this is probably not. This probably does go on, and it's all about limiting belief. And it's that limiting belief that's making you sit there and say, sounds hokey, right? So let's talk about how one would go about that. So, you know, the whole concept of getting it under contract, maybe having a couple bucks to put down, but then going and finding the fund, the investors, what's the, well, what's the strategy there? How does this, how does that work? So most people want to know how they're going to, you're going to generate them a return or revenue. Here's what I see. I get pitched lots of deals. I look at lots of deals. I see people pitching me stuff, all kinds of crazy things and venture things and invest into cryptocurrency because cryptocurrency is going to be the next whatever. I have some crypto holdings, but I was like, just because crypto is the next thing or real estate's the next thing, I want to know how the sausage is made. Getting into the details of this is how we're going to generate the returns or the revenues, the levers we're going to pull. And I, I think leading with that, if you don't know how to do that, it doesn't mean that you can't do it. It's just, you have to go connect with people that know how to do that or structure or put together and do that presentation. That's why I say this is a team sport. Go talk to the brokers. They want to close deals. They, similar to like a real estate agent that sees the transactions going on, very few of them actually own very much real estate. They all want to be the sponsors, but they know how to structure it. They see it. The real estate attorneys that you can pay on an hourly rate that can structure your deal, put it together, build out a pro forma. You can hire someone to do a pro forma, model out your deal and says, this is how you're going to make the profit. And so if you can understand with a, a certain level of clarity of these are the, the mechanisms in which I can unlock value and then ultimately, all things become a layer of trust is I trust that Jeff knows what he's doing. So I'm going to give Jeff my money. And so since Jeff knows what he's doing, and then he can extrapolate and return the value back, then that allows you to kind of raise outside money. If it was into your question earlier, is like, did I put together my own funds? No, I worked with somebody else that had he sold his company for $300, 400000000 million. He was a land developer. 
He was a home builder. He had lots of money, but he needed someone. And here's the, the more successful that people get are, they understand exactly what I said earlier about time is their most precious commodity. They're willing to give their funds to someone that's willing to do the hard work or the sweat equity and get a percentage of the deal. And so at young buck that I was, that was just kicked in the teeth is that's the role I went and fulfilled was I'll go do the, the working in the trenches. Cause the guy was like, I have plenty of money. I am not interested in going do more work. And so that's where I was able to help solve his problem by doing the hard work. That's, that's, uh, it's, it's very validating and I think reassuring. But let's talk about the, the listener who's never dabbled in this and probably had those, has those limiting beliefs as, as to why they can't. And talk to them about where you suggest they get started. Because my guess is that you know, if, a, if, if, a, if a lot of investors or realtors come to you and say, I want to get started, you're probably not steering them and saying, go find a $10 million deal. I mean, so where do you get started? Because you know, we're talking about buying... It can, it can be retail space. It could be, you know, it could be warehouse space. There's so many different ways you can go with this. Where do you even suggest they get started? Yeah. And I think it, 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 the oftentimes people initially think they want to own the real estate. And what I've found is some of those people actually don't want to own the real estate. Like they think they heard us on a podcast, they heard it on, you know, somewhere else. And they're like, I need to go buy a self-storage unit. That's $3 million because I have the wherewithal to put that money down, but then they got to go operate it. Like they got to go manage it. They got to, you know, service the debt. They have to open the bills. They have to go do those other things. And, and the reality is like, they're a doctor. You know, and they're like, they're making a million dollars a year being a doctor. They think they want to own the real estate. And so diving in a little bit deeper as far as for someone is you're going to make mistakes. And so it depends on who you are. Are you really, you know, like me, that I have to do real estate? Doesn't matter if you kick me in the teeth, drag me through the trenches, like I'm going to get back up and I'm going to do more real estate. If that's who you are and you want to unlock your ownership through operating, being a sponsor, then I would say these are some of the things that you can get in and, and start doing and doing deals and then finding out what is interesting to you and maybe it's your market. But I also think there's a lot of value in being an LP into other people's deals, finding out what they do right. Go invest. If you had you know, put $50,000 in, if you had $250,000, put 50,000 in five different investment deals as LPs. You want to be multifamily, go invest into some LP equity into five multifamily operators and see what they do. People, I think, have this, this sense that like they have to do it immediately and right away. Real estate is a long-term strategy for getting wealthy. And I think, think about this as a 10-year, a 20-year timeline, a 50-year timeline. And But everybody's so in a rush that I have to make $50,000 or $100,000 this year. And I go, I think that's the wrong way. You're setting yourself up for failure. And then it's like, play slower, understand as far as the dynamics. It, and the more specificity that you can get around what you want to do, then you're going to be able to find the right deals 
the better advantages, you know, in your competitive market set or asset type. And then you can say, I buy, you know, self-storage units that are mom paw operators in tertiary markets that have no sophistication from a technology platform. And then this is the lever that I can play. And that's how I'm going to build out my wealth in those units. And when you have that level of sophistication in the commercial real estate space, then you attract other people's capital and they go, great, that absolutely makes sense. I understand what you do. But when you're just starting out, you're going to be randomly pulling stuff on LoopNet or CoStar or Crexy and just be like, hey, look, there's an urgent care in Illinois. It says it's an eight cap. Let me go invest into it. Yeah. You could do that. But you also have to understand there's an inherent a lot of risk to that. Is anything listed on the market likely is kind of a crappy deal? Interesting. So let's be very specific here. Let's uh, let's go down this let's go down this path. And if somebody came to you with the question that I posed, so I would ask as far as they want to get started in commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. I try to ask, and, and, and you know. Theoretical is is not from theoretical. It's like, why do you want to do this? And because the why is very important, and oftentimes it is, I want financial freedom. Okay, you want financial freedom. What does financial freedom mean to you? What is that? You know, and and really, I go through it uh, through the book. I gave out some things like a dream life calculator. Most people would be like, I need to make a million dollars a year, and be like, okay, great. Why? Why do you need to make a million dollars a year? Well, because it sounds like a lot of money. Seven figures is the right amount of money. But then if you actually boil down, and and very few people do this, get specificity of their life, of their vision of what they want their future to be. And so like when somebody that was doing that, and and I use this because they're asked, what does your dream life cost? He's like, I wanted a house in Villa or a Villa in Italy. I wanted, you know, to fly on a private jet. I want to have these things. And when you really actually mapped it all out, he didn't need to make a million dollars a year. $650,000 would more than cover his dream life. Give him a month Villa, you know, renting in in Italy, you know, uh, afford him $100,000 a year in private jet flights do all those other things. And the reality is, is that, you know, without having clarity, it's like the Alice in Wonderland. When you go to the, the Cheshire cat or, or the, uh, the Mad Hatter, which, where do you want to go? Like, I don't know where I want to go, but like, then I can't give you the direction of which way to go. And so that's why, as far as to understand your why, and then understand as far as the why, not only that to the numbers, like how much money do you have to actually make? And then when you can back into those things, then it's like, what interests you? A single tenant net lease Arby's in Ohio may sound like the most painful thing that you've ever heard of and never want to invest into. But to some people, that is immensely sexy. Right. And be like, so if that's your thing, that's low risk, it's an absolute net lease deal. It requires no you know, work, your wife or your spouse, or your partner can manage that. You can qualify for real estate professional status. You can do some cost segregations to save on your taxation and then layer that in. Then that might buy the right deal for you. And I would advise you to go into that deal. And it's kind of like a wealth advisor. Like, 
which way do you advise somebody to go and invest into and be like, there's so many variables to that. It is very, very difficult for me to even on a podcast or anything is to specifically say invest into this because I don't know you. Okay. So let me, let me give you some, some specifics just for the sake of of doing it right before we have to wrap up. I listened to this podcast. And I hadn't thought about commercial before, but I listened to this podcast and listened to you both say that, you know, it makes sense because it's actually easier, arguably. And I live in the Midwest. We're just going to use this for, 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 you know, for the, for the sake of this. And I've got, you know, I've, I've got less than 50 grand of my own cash to invest in this. And uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm a real estate agent. I'm, I'm, I'm middle of the road. I have a small team. We're pretty successful. And I just want to expand my portfolio. And so with that said, you know, I don't have a a ton of millionaire friends or anything like that, that I can just go to and ask them to invest in this. So what do you suggest? Where should I go? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm going to force you into an answer here, Jake. So um, I think you need to find a good deal. And so when I say a good deal is with little money, little money to put down, you're going to have to find a good deal and bring that to somebody or a bank, another investor sell it, wholesale it type of thing, you know, but the reality is, is like you could put, you know, no rich people, but guess what? The internet is a very big place and you can put together a 506 C crowdfund your, and, and generally solicit the raising of capital for a deal. And it, you can, Take them on Facebook ads and for $10,000 worth of Facebook ads, probably generate investors into a deal if it's a good deal. So you or that person probably needs to find a good deal first because they don't have a track record. They don't have a bunch of capital to throw at it. Maybe they have some credit worthiness as far as, but uh, so they need to find a good deal. And so that might be in your local market. And I'm going to give you a, a, how somebody I, I saw recently do this is they started text messaging out every commercial real estate owner in their market. They just text them. They got onto uh, Reonomy, Reonomy, a website to pull the, the information from the owners. And their thing was, I just want to know what the price was that the, they, those people would be willing to sell. And so they asked just kind of like a first order principle of what would you sell your building for? And they said, because like, it'd be awesome if there was like a Zillow of that that existed for commercial real estate and what somebody would sell their building for. And they said, a lot of people are interested in multifamily. A lot of people were interested in this market. And so we just went through and we texted every single person that owned an apartment building in town. What would you sell your real estate for? And then you know what they came up with is they found, and of the 3,000 multifamily owners, they found somebody that was willing to sell it for a good price for $800,000. And they're like, whoa. That should actually be worth 1.6 million because of the research they had done. Because of the research that they did, they found a good deal. And then, so what happens is then they found a good deal that should be worth 1.6 million. They got it and they found it. Somebody's willing to sell it for 800,000. The reason they're willing to sell it for 800,000 is because their dad had bought it 30 years ago 
And they just didn't want to deal with it. It had crappy tenants that, you know, they're like, men. they're always calling us because the toilets are leaking. I just want to get rid of this. The fact that you text me and make it super easy. Yeah, I'd sell it for 800000 So they put it into escrow. Interesting. And so then that $800,000, you know, thing was it became a lot easier because then they could take it to a bank and the bank was like, this should be worth $1.6 million. We'll give you a million dollars. 800,000 to buy it and 200,000 to fix it up. So they had no money, they had no real track record. They had no real consistency of, of the thing, but they found the good deal. And I would say multifamily, especially for people that are looking to get from residential to multifamily, it has some very similar mechanisms of fix up a kitchen, a bathroom or whatever. So that becomes a very easy place for people to transition to on the small scale multifamily. There's eight plex, 10 plex, 12 plex units in almost every town that exists anywhere in the country. And so that allows them to get and dabble into some commercial real estate space, especially if they can self-manage it. Now it is ultra competitive because there's so many people chasing down those same deals. You know, there's different mechanisms to use that if it was a retail center, you know, and other things. But I'd say for someone that had no money, little experience, go find a good deal. And that good deal may be, you know, something like a multifamily, small multifamily in a market that you could manage. Love that. Uh, so, so and re- reiterate or spell the website that you mentioned, the Rayonomy. Rayonomy, R-E-O-N-O-M-Y, I think it is. Rayonomy, it is a commercial real estate um, kind of database that tracks all the mortgage holders and owners of, of the, you know, particular asset types. Owners. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yep. Uh, that that's fantastic. And, you know, some of that stuff through CoStar through other, you know, mm-hmm. areas to, to track that data, but then it's like, and then you may do, you know, text, um, you know, numbers and scrubbing and other things, but then it's just like, here you go. I want to buy industrial centers and maybe that's it. You like industrial cause it's, low risk and higher cap rate. And you're like, I'm just going to text every industrial owner in the Midwest. That's interesting. It's, it's a hell of a strategy because really you can approach it as though you're just inquiring and really you are. And then eventually, even if you only get, you know, let's just say you text 2000 people, you might only get a hundred replies, but if out of, but if one out of the hundred, if, if they all say a range of a high number and the one out of the hundred comes in several hundred thousand lower, bam, you just got yourself a deal. And that's awesome. Started with no that's money. awesome. Yeah. That's fantastic. Okay, so two two more questions, and we'll wrap up. Uh, I, t- I told you I was going to ask you. Clearly, you know you've 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 set the groundwork. You have the experience. You're doing a hell of a lot of great things. You've now been through a lot. You know, you went through the crash of 0708. You've now gone through uh, the quote unquote interesting times. I don't know what I want to call it. I wasn't going to call it a crash, but uh, the COVID times, right? And you see where the market is right now. What do you see coming? And so anybody who is an investor in real estate, what's your opinion on what's coming? And should, should they wait? Because prices are so inflated right now. Is there a correction coming? Or do you, what, what is your take on, on that from an investor standpoint? So the fundamentals are really, really strong. And what I mean from fundamentals is the market is massively undersupplied on residential units across the country. Mm-hmm. So if you actually track this out, and so in the, the 2000s, we overbuilt residential units. And so there was probably 4 million, 5 million, too many 
homes and apartments, and yeah. which subsequently led to the subprime meltdown was that just they were building too many houses. And so, and then there was a glut of supply. Well, then the they started underbuilding. And so eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, they were only building 500,000, 600,000. And so the net we need is 1 million new residential units annually, one to 1.2 million, depending on, on how you uh, look at the numbers. And that's just from birth rates and immigration and just kind of population, like we need 1.2 million new units every single year. We have not built over that 1.1 million or 1.2 million any year. And since 07, you know, since or 06, like we have not once ever done that. And so what happens is you actually saw, and if you, you monitor this, is it was 4 million, it was three and a half million, it was 3 million, it was 2 million. This is the oversupply. Mm -hmm. And then in 2012, we got to an equilibrium. We had the appropriate amount of houses, residential units, to the amount of demand that happens. And I don't know if you've noticed, from 2012 and now till today of 2022, we've been underbuilding. And so what happened to real estate prices since 2012? They went up. They went up, they went up. So because of the fundamentals that we have been undersupplying the market, the prices have gone up, 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 and up. And so we're currently sitting at somewhere around four and a half or five million residential units too short. Not wow. enough for the demand that exists. And this is not evenly dispersed across the United States. California, the West Coast, New York, they're doing fantastic jobs of driving people out of California and the Northeast. They're driving them to Boise and Salt Lake and Phoenix and Texas. And the Northeast is driving them to Tennessee and the Carolinas and Florida and Texas. And so mm -hmm. like what happens is there's 5 million residential units. Most of them are heavily weighted towards the sunbelt of where they need more homes. And so that's what I mean by the fundamentals are very, very strong. And it shows that, even if interest rates go up, I still think you're going to see prices go up and up and up because there is a, a, a built-up demand. However, consumer sentiment or consumer demand is another factor that bakes into this. Just because the fundamentals are this, if people just don't feel like buying, they feel uncomfortable, they feel disconnected, it doesn't matter what those fundamentals are. They can just kick that can down the road. So your investment thesis really depends on how long you're going to hold those assets. Are you holding them for a year and trying to flip them? Are you holding them for five years? Are you holding them for 10 years? And so if you're looking at investing, like I want to hold this for the next five years, I think it is an unbelievable, fantastic time to be investing. If you're looking at, I'm going to flip this in the next six months, or I need it to go up or double in value in the next year, eh, maybe seems a little bit more risky. But locking up low interest rate, long-term fixed is going to be a very big and big winner, and especially in a market that has changing market fundamentals and are upswinging. So I don't think the market's correcting down. I don't think there's going to be a, a bottom falling out. There's so much capital chasing, so few deals. And it is like, you know, it's like being a professional gambler or a poker player or something or a blackjack. You're going to be making bets all the time. Just calculated risk. You know, sometimes you double down, 
Sometimes you split tens. Sometimes you're maybe a little bit more conservative the way that you're placing capital. So if you're locking up long-term low interest rate, I think you're ultimately going to win, you know, almost irregardless of where you place capital, as long as you don't lose it and are forced to, to transact in, in a untimely uh, time period. That's uh, an awesome take. Very interesting take. And I think um, it might be slightly different than what some people think. And, and that's good. Um, what, what about the correction? What about the correction in the number of homes built? Do you think they're going to figure that out and get that right uh, sooner than later? Not sooner. So I think it's going to have to do, you know, you're going to see uh, advanced manufacturing of like Europe and Sweden and Japan is so you're going to see more robotics. And I've actually been investing a lot of time into this panelized construction. You're going to see things, you know, producing and kind of almost modular or prefabricated, you know, components that are getting layered into the construction industry is a very, very difficult problem to solve and to solve at scale. Katera was going to go do that. And, you know, they took on SoftBank money and, you know, they kind of, we worked it, you know, boom, blew up, you know, they're a billion dollar company. Nope. We're bankrupt. We closed down. They tried to get too big, too fast. And so I think you can solve that on a regional level. And, but I think it takes time and it takes time to develop those uh, advanced manufacturing techniques that allow to build homes on a more cost effective way. In California, it costs you half a million dollars to build a residential unit just from the cost of the permits and the sticks and the bricks. And it costs you half a million dollars. So if you're ever able to buy stuff under that half a million dollar price point, I think you're going to be intrinsically under the value and you're going to have uh, the potential to win long term. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I, I say that uh, I, I, the government needs to figure out that they're trying, you know, because they, they put this, they invest or they, they put their their emphasis on first-time home buyers, but if the first-time home buyer doesn't have a house to buy, this is just, it just goes to show you how kind of ignorant the government is about this. Whereas they should be taking that 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 stimulus or whatever it is they're giving to the first-time home buyer and give it to the builders, and say every time you build a house within this price point, that that, that you know obviously creates more homes, you get the stimulus of the fifteen thousand. Then let's see if the builders start running. Uh, to go build these starter neighborhoods because they've all gone to building higher end price homes because it's got more margin. In it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's capitalism, you know, it's like, why yeah. do you keep making the houses bigger? Well, because the profits, yeah. people buy square footage in houses, they rent by bedrooms. And so there is, there's opportunities in it. Uh, I think there's opportunities in infill housing uh, that already has the infrastructure built in. Uh, I think, you know, you know, transportation for the last mile will be solved through, you know, micro mobility, self-driving cars, scooters, other things like that. And that are built in urban environments that people can walk to where they work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe that is going to need to happen. And it's going to be densifying and, and getting rid of, you know, revamping some zoning. Uh, revamping parking requirements, revamping a lot of those things. You see incremental of that, like allowing people to build ADUs or mother-in-law quarters in the back of their single family, uh, limiting some of those. So you'll see more and more of that happening as it becomes more of a systemic problem. Interesting. Well, obviously we, we are, 
we've gone long, which is great. That obviously means it's a very, uh, it's a great topic. So for those that might say, man, I got questions for Jake, like how can they get in touch with you? How can they connect with you? Where's the best place to find you? And, and where would you like to send them both, both answers? Catchknives.com is, you know, where you can buy the book. I teach some courses on investing into commercial real estate, at least doing due diligence on that, especially around the net lease deals, because I see people running into those. Um, and actually, I'd, I'd be willing to, to give your audience a discount as far as uh, from the podcast. So I'll give them 50% off on what some of those courses are. If there is, I don't know. How do you feel about the, the code word, Jeff? How about, that's great. Let's go with that. Yeah. Okay. I like that. So, uh, Jeff, and you can get discount off on the courses. You can also buy the book. We have, we give away free things. You can sign up for the newsletters. We put all, almost all of our content through that website, thecatchknives.com. I'm most active on social media is Instagram is at jake.realestate. I know my team puts out some stuff every once in a while via LinkedIn and uh, maybe even you know Twitter and I have a YouTube channel. We're putting you know some of those out there, but you know through the catchknives.com is the best way to connect up to that. Either signing up through the newsletter, or if there's la- layers of interesting of learning how to it, or just communicating and say, hey, I'm interested in looking at, at deals. They can get all through that platform. Love it, catchknives.com, and you're all very welcome. Code word Jeff, so you can remember who got you this deal. Somehow, somewhere. I don't know how that happened exactly, but Jake, thank you so much for being on. Uh, let's stay in touch, man. I think this is a great conversation. We probably need to do this again and talk about some more stuff at some point. So uh, stay in touch. The Lab Coat community appreciates uh, all of your insight today. And uh, hopefully we can uh, we can send a few of our listeners on a path to, uh, to owning some more commercial real estate. That sounds awesome. Look forward to it. And we'll have to uh, solve all the world's problems again, you know, maybe <laughs> six months from now, one real estate project at a time. I love it. Cheers, Jeff. This episode of the Lab Goat Agents podcast is brought to you by RedX, the complete real estate prospecting solution. RedX offers high quality lead data on expireds, for sale by owners, vacant rental property owners, pre foreclosures, and geo leads, the number one data source for neighborhood prospecting. You can also filter, organize, and call your leads inside Vortex, the all-in-one lead management platform, free with any lead subscription. With RedX, you get more than just phone numbers. You get all the tools you need to connect with more homeowners who are actively looking to sell. RedX is offering our listeners $150 off. Just go to redx.bz forward slash LCA. That's R-E-D-X dot B-Z forward slash LCA to sign up for Red X today. Lab Coat Agents Podcast.